0: Tonight we're going to study together Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 20. We want to look just quickly at Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Paul has in Romans chapter 2, 1 to 3, 8, Paul brings on trial the Jew, And uh, first of all, he states the principles of God's judgment, Romans 2, 1 to 16. Then he demonstrates the privileges and the failure of the Jew, Romans 2, 17. 24. Third, he destroys the false refuge of the Jew, which was circumcision. Now he comes to the objections which they're going to raise. And there are three of them. Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Three objections. Paul anticipates them. No doubt Paul had heard these time and time again on his missionary journey. You recall that whenever Paul went to a city, the first place Paul headed for was the synagogue. Why? Well, because that's where the Old Testament scriptures were read and studied. That's where people would be looking for the Messiah. So when Paul hit the city of Ephesus or the city of Philippi, not in Philippi, they didn't have a synagogue apparently, but Thessalonica and Corinth, Paul went immediately to the synagogue and he preached. And no doubt Paul heard these objections again and again and again. There are three of them. First of all, no advantage. Romans 3, 1 and 2. Let's simply read it. What advantage then? Well, Paul, if, if, if circumcision doesn't help us any, if our circumcision doesn't help us any more than a Gentile, then what advantage do we have in being a Jew? And what profit is there to circumcision? Romans 3, 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul answers, much, every way, many advantages, primarily because under the Jew were committed the oracles of God. Now, let me put that in in modern terms. Let us say that I say to a person or you say to a person in Memphis, you've heard the gospel, you rejected the gospel, and since you rejected the gospel and the Christ of the Bible, then you're no better off than the man in darkest Russia or darkest China. And you say to me, well, what advantage then is there of my being born in Memphis and have a Bible and hear the gospel? My answer would be much every way, much every way. You have a Bible, you hear of Christ, you hear the gospel. Just because you don't take advantage of the gospel doesn't mean there's No advantage to having the gospel close at hand. So Paul's answer to this objection, what advantage then is it being a Jew? What advantage is there to having the covenant relationship circumcision? Paul's answer is, much every way. There is a great advantage, Paul said, much every way. There's a great advantage to being a Jew, much every way. And you notice, by the way, are you listening? Those are present tenses. Present tenses. You say, "Well, so what?" Well, this is after the cross and after Pentecost, and Paul still says that the Jew, after the cross and after the Pentecost, still has advantages, which means that God is still going to deal with the Jew. If Paul believed in a popular theory today that the church is spiritual Israel and that God is finished with the Jews and there there won't be any future and no future millennium and no future reign of Christ and the church is spiritual Israel, a term which the Bible never uses, then Paul would have put it in the past tense, but he didn't. What advantage has a Jew? Much every way, much every way. Then he says, because, first of all, there was committed to them the oracles of God. And by the oracles of God, he refers to the Old Testament. And he refers more specifically to the promises God gave to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God made many promises. In fact, God made four great covenants with the nation of Israel. Premillennialism is not based on an obscure passage in an obscure book, Revelation 20. Premillennialism is based on the four great unconditional covenants God made with the nation of Israel. The first one, the Abrahamic. The second one, the Palestinian; The third one, the Davidic covenant. And the fourth one, the New Covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised to Abraham a seed, a literal physical seed. The Davidic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, promised to them a land and described its boundaries. The Davidic Covenant promised to them a beneficent despot, a king, who would rule over all of them. And the New Covenant promised them a new heart one day that would embrace all the promises of God. So Paul says, does the Jew have any advantage? Absolutely. 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 Just as you have an advantage being born in Memphis and having a Bible and hearing the gospel, you have a tremendous advantage over the man that's born in the heart of Africa or in the heart of China or the heart of Russia who never hears the gospel. No. First of all, to them were committed the promises of God, the covenant promises. Well, that leads to a second objection. In order for those covenant promises to be fulfilled. Somebody must believe those promises in order for God to fulfill them to those people who believe, those Israelites that believe. But supposing all Israel doesn't believe, then God can't fulfill his promises. And on your premise, Paul, then God is unfaithful. That's the second objection. No faithfulness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? What if some of Israel did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true. But every man a liar, as it's written by David, that thou mightest be justified in thy sins, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. judge. Now, the objection raised here is this. Well, now Paul... Uh, just like you, we believe that God has made great promises to the nation of Israel. But if, if a Jew is no better than a Gentile, and if we haven't received that Messiah of whom you speak, then God can't fulfill those promises. But He's promised to fulfill them. But if we don't believe, He can't fulfill them. Therefore, God will be unfaithful. What's your answer to that, Paul? Well, Paul gives two answers. Paul gives two answers, first one is let if every man, if you put in the scales God and the whole human race, let God be true and all the human race be liars, God would still be faithful to his word. Now the second answer is deferred. first, the Paul, Paul is going to devote three whole chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11 to that question. That is the question, will God fulfill his covenant promises to the nation of Israel? Now, we hope that, uh, uh, we hope we're going to get there one day. That is not to Israel, but to Romans 9, 10, 11. We hope we're going to get there one day because uh, we want to study whether or not uh, uh, Israel forfeited those promises and they are now being fulfilled to the church and the millennium is Christ's reign in heaven. That's Augustine. The Protestant reformers never quite shook themselves loose from that view. And that's a very popular view uh, today on millennialism. And it's popular here in the city of Memphis. And I have some very dear friends who embrace this position. They're very dear friends. I have to believe they're wrong. But they're still dear friends, and they're godly people. But I happen to believe they're wrong, and it rests upon these covenant promises. The church is not spiritual Israel. God is someday going to fulfill those covenant promises to the nation of Israel, and he'll be found faithful. Now, we're going to have to wait until we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11 to look at that more carefully. Now, Paul quotes in verse 4, he quotes something that uh, David wrote in Psalm 51. The background uh, to this is uh, David's sin, his adultery, and David says, now God warned me if I did this thing, God warned me of the consequences. I went ahead and did it. So, said David, I want to go on record that God is absolutely just in judging me. God is absolutely fair. And equitable and righteous in judging me. I won't the least bit attempt to go into court and challenge what God is doing to me. God warned me, I sinned against light, And and because I sinned against light, God is absolutely true. Whatever God does to me is perfectly right. He has a right to do it. And as said, David, more than that, more than that, my sin, God is using my sin to demonstrate his own righteousness. Why? The white purity of God's holiness stands out brighter on the darkness of my sin. My sin, my sin, though God doesn't approve it, said David, my sin Demonstrates by God's judgment to all the world. My sin demonstrates the purity and holiness and righteousness of God. Well, says the objector, very wily objector here. Paul had heard it, no doubt, many times. If that's true, if God uses your sin to glorify Himself, if God uses your darkness, sin to demonstrate his purity and holiness if he uses it then God ought to commend me for sinning rather than judge see God ought to commend me God ought to be glad that I sin because my sin enables God to demonstrate his grace and it reflects his holiness Now, that's the third objection. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commands, displays, demonstrates, if our unrighteousness displays the righteousness of God, like that diamond shines more beautifully on that black velvet. If my sin, unrighteousness, displays the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Why we say that God is unrighteous who judges us. He ought to thank us, not judge us. and that's so abhorrent of Paul Paul says, I speak as a man when I say that. His answer, God forbid. for then how shall he judge the world? That, if, if that's true, why God couldn't judge the world. why? Because God's going to take every sin, every sin and turn it around, And without approving of it, use that sin to demonstrate his glory. Why, God did it with the greatest sin in human history. What was the greatest sin in human history? What was it? What was the greatest sin in human history? The murder of Jesus. That's the greatest sin. But God took the greatest sin in human history and turned it around and worked out our redemption for his glory. So said Paul. If that were true, if your proposition were true that God ought to commend us for sinning because it displays his righteousness, then said Paul in verse 5, God couldn't judge the world and that would mean that God couldn't judge the Gentile. and the Jews wouldn't stand for that, you see. He would like that. And then Paul gives a second answer, for if the truth of God, he repeats the same thing. If the truth of God has more abounded to my lie and to his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, not rather, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, not rather, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul says of that, whose condemnation is just. Anybody that says that is justly condemned by God. Now, when Paul says that, and I'd like to spend time, but I'm not, let us do evil that good may come." To put that in popular terms today, the way we'd say it today is this: The end justifies the means. Let us do evil that good may come. If we can accomplish a good end by doing an evil thing, let us do evil that good may come. the end. Justifies the name. Now, who was the first person that used that kind of rationalization? Who was the first person that used it? Plato? Aristotle? No, all the men who were here Friday morning ought to know because I spent 10 minutes on this last Friday morning. Who was it? It was Eve. Eve was the first one. See? Eve was the first one. Uh, Eve said uh, when the devil came and said, uh, as God said, you can't, she said, right. That's exactly what God said. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. And then she said, don't touch it. Now, I don't think that was sinful because that's, if were that's when sin would have taken place and it didn't. So that was proper, what she said. Don't eat of it. She knew the command of God. Don't eat of it. The devil said, oh, but if you eat of it. If you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And she looked, and she said, my, it's good for our diet, and it's aesthetically beautiful, and it will make me wise. My, that's a good end. What's a good end? What's a good end? Well, to have a good diet for my husband, and to have something that's aesthetically beautiful, and to eat something that will make you wise. That's a good end. But God said, don't eat. Yes, I know God said, don't eat. But at the same time, see, Eve is rationalizing. But at the same time, I can't achieve that good end, have something delicious to provide for my husband, have something that's aesthetically beautiful, have something that will make us both wise. I can't achieve that unless I eat. But God said, don't eat. But if I don't eat, I can't achieve the end. So surely God won't mind me overlooking this and disobeying him see, and eating the fruit of the tree, because I'm going to achieve a good end. See? The end justifies the need. Let me put it in the 20th century. Two young people. One a Christian. The other, not a Christian. I use this because this happens so often. This Christian girl reared in a gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching church. She's heard it from her pastor again and again that the Bible teaches, as it does, don't be unequally yoked together. She reads 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, that about a widow that she can remarry, yet only in the Lord. A Christian ought to marry only a Christian. But she starts dating an unconverted fellow. He's morally clean as a hound's too. He's a good fellow, decent, kind, morally clean as a hound's too. But he's not a Christian. So she begins to date with him. And that and dates. And you know, and she dates, she's going to fall in love. The place to stop it is not when the engagement is made, it's when it's dating. She falls in love. And she comes to the pastor. He says, I'm going to get married. Will you marry me? Well, he says, wonderful. What is the, what's his name? And she begins to describe. And the pastor finally says, now you grown up in the church. I remember the day that you trusted the Lord Jesus as your savior. You're a Christian. Is he a Christian? And she hedges. She says, well, he, uh, he's never tried to take any liberties with me. Well, that's, that, That's excellent. He's always conducted himself as a perfect gentleman. That's excellent. He promised that once we get married, he'd start going to church with me regularly. Well, that's excellent, said the pastor. But the Bible says don't be unequally yoked together. Well, she says, I know that. I know that. But I have determined by the grace of God that after we're married, I am going to win him to Christ as Savior. I'm going to see you get saved. Now, is it a good thing to win a man to Christ as Savior? Is it? Absolutely. But it's not right to do wrong, to do right. The end doesn't justify the means. If you want to do it, then get him saved before, see? Just as uh, our good friend, many of you heard him, Dr. Carter, Lewis Carter, the son, who's been a missionary, medical missionary, and married his, obviously, his present wife, but when he first met her, she was not a Christian, and he kindly, tactfully witnessed to her and won her to saving faith in Christ, and then they got married. But the end doesn't justify the meaning, and Paul is dealing with that, and he says, whose condemnation is just. The end doesn't justify the meaning. Now having dealt with the guilt of the Jew, first the guilt of the Gentile, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Secondly, the guilt of the Jew, Romans 2, 1 to chapter 3 verse 8. Now Paul's going to tie it all together and bring in the final verdict. And that final verdict is given to us in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 20 and you have the outline. Now let's take our Bibles and read this section together. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Here's the final verdict. Paul summarizes his case at this point. You know, just as the prosecuting attorney, when the trial is almost over and just before it's ready to go to the jury, the prosecuting attorney summarizes the case, makes his final summation, and brings in the final review of the evidence to support the indictment. So that's what Paul is going to do here. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, what then? What is our conclusion? What is our conclusion? We brought up the first man, the Gentile. He's without excuse. We brought up the Jew. He's without excuse. What then? What is our conclusion? Are we Jews better than they? Absolutely. Absolutely not. No, in no way, for we have before charged, not proved, charged, not proved, that's unfortunate, not proved, it's charged, we before indicted, we have before indicted, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Now comes the proof, as it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together becoming profitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, like a, like a medical doctor, the Holy Spirit says, open up your mouth. Let me put that stick down there and look at your throat. See? Their throat is an open sepulcher. Look at that tongue. With their tongues, they've used to see the poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's their speech. What about their deeds? The feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, misery in their ways, the way of peace have they not known? And the cause of it all, verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world stand guilty before God. Because by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law, or as Philip translates it, by the straight edge of the law is the knowledge of sin. Now here's Paul's final verdict. Here Paul summarizes the case. He states the verdict and he gives the evidence. And uh, in this, what he states is that all men, Jew and Gentile, every man without exception, stands guilty before God. Now, what is the purpose of Romans chapter 3, 9 to 20? Will you listen? The purpose of Romans 3, 9 to 20 is to bring in the evidence. That's why I said in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, that word ought not to be translated P-R-O-V-E-D. He hasn't proved it yet he's indicted them he's charged them Romans 118 to three eight he's charged them now he's going to give the evidence and the evidence is from the Old Testament see that's the evidence and he brings in fourteen quotations in the Old Testament so Romans 118 to three eight we have the indictment Romans chapter three nine to 20 we have the proof of that indictment, the evidence. To so, whom was he primarily addressing himself here? Well, he's primarily addressing himself to the Jews, to the Jews. who so, was the one that held that the, that the Old Testament was inspired by God and who accepted it as his final authority, the Jews. So Paul went over to the Old Testament, which they accepted, and that's where he secured his evidence to demonstrate that all men are guilty before God. And Paul's appeal for this verdict is to the Scripture. Galatians 4.30, what saith the Scripture? Paul doesn't, uh, Paul doesn't defend it. Paul doesn't hedge about it. Paul doesn't excuse it. Paul simply declares it as the infallible word of God, the final rule and seat of authority. And he doesn't hedge it at all. doesn't stop to prove it, but the Bible is the... Word of God, he doesn't argue it, he doesn't defend it, he declares it, which is what we ought to do in preaching. See, the pulpit is not the place to argue for the Bible and defend the Bible. The pulpit is a place to declare the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will defend it in the heart. Man asked Mr. Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon's not the one that comes over here, but the one that lived in America, uh, in England. The man that used to preach to uh, about uh, six or eight thousand people every Sunday. The greatest, Spurgeon's Tabernacle, the greatest meeting place, I suppose, in the Western Hemisphere at this time. And man said, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you defend the Bible? Spurgeon said, Defend it. Defend it. Why? He said, I don't defend it. You don't defend the lion, said Spurgeon. You turn the lion loose. See? And that's what I do with the Bible. I don't defend it. And he didn't. Now there's a place for apologetics. We had a man in the city about a month ago. He's a faculty member at Dallas Seminary. That's especially. That's a place. There is a place for apologetics. There is a place for evidences. But not really the pulpit. The pulpit is a place not for apologetics, but for the proclamation of the word of God. And that's what Paul did. He simply went to the Old Testament and brought out these quotations and cited them as final authority. That settles escape in the case. What saith the Scripture? Now, there are three things here. First, in verse 9, the indictment. Secondly, in verses 10 to 18, the evidence, and 19 and 20, the verdict. Three things. Can I say those again? Well, I will anyway. Three things Paul does in this summary. First, the indictment, the charge, the indictment, verse 9. Secondly, the evidence, 10 through 18. Third, the verdict, 19 and 20. Three simple things. The charge or the indictment. Secondly, the evidence. And then third, the verdict. Now, let's look at this. You know, we could spend three or four uh, Monday nights on this. I happen to believe that one of the uh notes that needs to be sounded stronger today in American preaching is the note on sin. And when I say the note on sin, I don't mean uh drinking and and uh and running around. I'm not thinking about that. Although that could well be included. What I am thinking about is the sinfulness of human nature. Not Not the boil on the arm, but the, that, that venom that runs inside, that men are incurably, incurably sinful and cannot help themselves because the average man is incurably addicted to lifting himself to heaven by his own bootstrap. And you know, even Christians tend to fall into that. Uh, even Christians, if they don't say works will save them, they will say, My faith saved me. No, faith didn't save you. Jesus saves you. And he saves you through faith. There's no saving merit to faith. And we're all incurably addicted to saving ourselves by works. And we need to be all right, go ahead. These three things quickly. First of all, the indictment Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says in the indictment, what then are we better than they? Are we Jews better than they? No, in no way. For we have before proved. Now you ought to change that word proved. That's not proved. The word is C-H-A-R-G-E-D. We have before charged or indicted. The proof is in verses 10 to 18. We have before charged, both Jew and Greek, that they are all under sin. Now what is the indictment you know you pick up a newspaper and we read that uh, a certain doctor in town at the present time has been indicted on certain charges what are they doing now he was indicted quite a while back what are they doing now bringing in the the evidence poor con he was indicted long ago now they're bringing in the evidence so in verses Chapter 118 to 38, we have the indictment. And in verse 9, we have the indictment. What is the indictment? Three words, what is it? All under sin. What is the indictment? All under sin. Everybody, Jew, Gentile, whatever you may be, whoever you may be, we're all under sin. That's the indictment. Now, what does that mean? All under sin. Well, I think it means two things. We say that sin does two things to us. Isn't it? Um, when I'm teaching the doctrine of Hamardiology, uh, uh, which is the doctrine of sin I illustrate this way and I know that some of you have seen this. If we can find a write the word sin and write an arrow up and an arrow down. Sin is an affront to God a violation of God's law and therefore renders me guilty but sin also works down on me and does something to me, it pollutes me, makes me a chief and a thief, an egocentric, and I need to be saved both from the guilt of sin and the pollution of sin. Now, my friends, that's why, uh, that's why God has given to us to give. I preach, I preach in a lot of churches, and I'm sure that some of you heard it, because I, it's a basic sermon that I preach because I think people need to know this. Galatians chapter 4, without looking now, Galatians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth, sent forth his son. Sent forth his son to save me from the guilt of sin. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit. So God has given to me two gifts. His son to save me from the guilt of sin, and His Spirit to save me from the pollution of sin. Now you know the difference, don't you? The guilt of sin, the guilt of sin. That's what I did. The guilt of sin. Sin is a violation of God's law, renders me guilty. I get out in Interstate 40 and travel 75 miles an hour. And the speed limit's 55. I'm 25 miles above speed limit. The state police pull me over and give me a ticket. Why? Because I'm guilty. Guilty. I violated the law and I'm guilty. So you and I have violated the law of God. And you and I are all guilty and subject to the wrath of God and eternal hell. We're guilty. But sin also works down and corrupts. And pollutes me and makes me self-centered, makes me egocentric, makes breathes all the passions into my life, brings trouble into marital relationships, sets father against son, and son against father. And that, you know, that, that's why God has given to us the Holy Spirit to save us from the pollution of sin. And that's a gradual thing will never be accomplished fully till we get to heaven. Nobody's perfectly sanctified, especially the person who says, "I'm perfectly sanctified." You know when he says "I'm perfectly sanctified," he's already guilty of two sins. One is self-deceit and the other is lying, see? Because the Bible says that we've all sinned, and First John, writing to believers, First John chapter one, verse eight, nine and 10. John says if anybody says he hasn't got a sinful nature and if any believer doesn't say does not commit sin he is a liar. John you know lacked a little tact in the way he wrote. He just called the spade a snake and he came down real hard. I like that. I like the way I never had the courage to get up and, and say to a crowd you vipers <laughs> but that's what John the Baptist did. You generation of vipers. John the Baptist did that and 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 the apostle john laid it on the table real clear and we've all sinned we're all under sin that's the indictment we're all under the guilt and pollution of sin now you ought to learn that see. sin does two things guilt pollution so the next time you sing that song rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flows they have sinned thee double cure save from guilt and wrath, save from guilt and wrath, and make me pure, save from pollution. God gave me a son to save me from the guilt of sin, and God gave me a spirit to sanctify me, save me from the pollution of sin. Now, that's the indictment, all under sin. Well, now, Paul, I Paul, can you to that. Can you prove it? They're having a hard time. You know, demonstrating. I'm not taking any stand here, but with this present case in the city of Memphis, they are having a hard time because uh, uh, although they got some real smart prosecutors, they've also got a top-flight defense attorney from Nashville, James Neal, so they're having a hard time. And uh, so the Jews says to Paul, that's a charge. Can you prove it? Yes, said Paul. Where? Well, I'll go over to the Old Testament and I'll prove it from the Old Testament. So Paul, verses 10 through 18 are all quotations from the Old Testament which the Jew accepted. Now let's look at those. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. Just as your outline says, there are three things in there. First of all, sin in human character. Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. As it's written, See, he's going to quote the Old Testament. For Paul and for the Jew, that was the final authority. As it's written, there is none righteous except you and me. No, how many? Now, none righteous. Now, when you look here, I'm not going to be able to take the time to explain every one of these. But see, uh, first of all, he speaks about sin in human character, 10, 11, and 12. And he brings up six things. The first one, none righteous. Uh, 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 by the word righteous, he means that a person measures up to a righteous or right standard. Person says righteous is someone who measures up to a right standard. Now, the question is, what is that standard? Why? It's the next door neighbor. Uh-huh. The elder. Did it? No. Romans 3, all of sin and have come short of God's standard. What is God's standard? What's his glory? Jesus. That's God's measuring rod. Now, with that in mind, you know, I, I say to a man, you can take your pick. See, God's going to give you a choice. You've got some alternatives. You've got a choice here. Take your pick. You, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, or the life of Jesus you measure up perfectly to any one of those three you'll make it to heaven well now you know obviously no man can that's the standard and by that standard there's none righteous no not one secondly there's none that understand nobody no unconverted man can understand God's truth the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? Foolishness. Now, he'll be able to write, you know, he can write a good systematic theology. He can write a good systematic theology. He can state it clearly. In fact, I have some books that are written by unbelievers, unbelieving theologians, that state the doctrine more accurately than some shoddy conservative scholar. But that's not what he means. What he means Uh, These unbelievers that write these, although they get it accurately, to them it makes no sense. It's foolishness. And it always will be foolishness until a man is converted. What did Jesus say except a man be born again he cannot see? That means understand. It just doesn't make sense. There's none that understand it. His intellect is polluted. None that understand it. Third. There's none that seeketh after God. His will is polluted. None that seeketh after God. For they're all gone out of the way. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Next one, they are together become useless. That is, they will never achieve the purpose for which God created them. Then he says finally, there is none that doeth good, No, not one. Now, when we say that a man cannot do any good, what we mean is that he cannot do any spiritually good. Now, what Paul is dealing with here is what is called in theology the doctrine of total depravity. What does total depravity mean? Well, total depravity doesn't mean that a man is as bad as he possibly could be. I know before I was converted that I was bad but also know that I wasn't as bad as I could possibly be. I wasn't far from it, <laughs> but I wasn't as bad as I possibly could be. Why? Because God's common grace restrains unconverted men for indulging from indulging all the sinful passions of their hearts. So Told depravity doesn't mean a man is not as bad as you. So depravity doesn't mean that an unconverted man cannot do civic good and moral good. An unconverted man can be a good father. In fact, there's some unconverted men that are probably better fathers than some converted men, see. You know, the tendency is often that preachers happen sometimes to be um, so occupied in the ministry that they're poor fathers. So an unconverted man can be a good father and a good citizen and be as honest as the day is long. Some converted men will edge and fudge a little on their income tax. Whereas some unconverted men have a conscience about that. And they're as straight as a straight line. We don't mean by total depravity that an unconverted man is not capable of doing any good. When we say total depravity, we mean that an unconverted man is incapable of doing any spiritual good that will acquire merit in the sight of God. Total depravity means total invasion, that sin has invaded all of me, my intellect, my will, my emotion. Total depravity means total bankruptcy. I have nothing to bring God. You know, how do we sing that hymn? In? in my hands, no price. I you know, you know, most of us sing it that way, but the way we think it, in my hands, some price I bring. To my good work I still will cling. But I'm bankrupt. I have nothing with which to sue God. And total depravity means total inability that by myself, I cannot come to God. And that's what he's saying in these six things. None righteous, he begins, and none that doeth good. How many? No, not one. Universal. You say, my, that's pessimistic. Yes, it is. That's dark. Yes, it is. Can that be true? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you know, the older a man grows, and the more he sees himself as he really is, the more he recognizes, even a saved person, even a saved person, that the potential for the worst sin is in my heart. There's not one person here, a Christian, not one Christian here, who doesn't have the potential in his heart for the worst sin. David committed adultery, sent a man out to, to die in the Peter denied the Lord Jesus all these were believers. The more I know God and the more I know myself, the more I am increasingly convinced of the sinfulness, the total depravity, of myself and the sinfulness of my human nature. See. God, give your heart to Jesus. What would God do with that heart? See? No, no. God's going to give you a new heart and a new will and new emotions and new effect. All right, now the second thing that Paul does, he looks not only at at, at our character, he looks at our conduct, verses 12, 13 to 17. And he puts that thing down in our throat. He says our throat is an open sepulcher. The heart is the corpse, it's walking, and the throat is the instrument through which it comes. With the tongues they have used deceit. They've got sugared tongues. Like Judas came to Jesus. And betrayed him with a kiss. The poison of ass is under their lips. What does that mean? That means that they've got the ability to destroy a person's character with their tongue. And I'll, uh, you know, every preacher prays, Lord, save me from some man or woman in the church that's got this kind of tongue. He's got this kind of tongue that'll damage and destroy and gossip. The points of ass under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You don't have to do anything but stand on the street. You don't have to do anything but turn on the television. And hear this. Mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their conduct. deep, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery. Oppression. Oppression. Destruction and misery. Oppression. And the tragedy is. That wherever the white unconverted white man has gone in this world, he's left the trail of oppression. The man that introduced opium into China was the man that wrote, "In the cross of Christ thy glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time," Sir John Bowles. Oppression, oppression, oppression. And verse seventeen, the way of peace they have not known. And the reason for all of this is that there's no fear of God. There's no disposition in the heart uh, of reverence toward God. Now we come to the verdict quickly. The verdict, verses 19 and 20. Now, Paul anticipates an objection. Uh, You know, and you say, why does he anticipate? Well, because because, uh, Paul has heard this many times. Now, when you look here, after Paul has quoted those 14 Old Testament scriptures. None do that doeth righteousness. See, all of those are, all of those are from the Old Testament. And man says, My goodness, that's terrible. That can't be true. Well, what we've got here is the divine perspective. Those are quoted. First six are quoted from Psalm 14. But Psalm 14:1 says, now listen. Psalm 14.1 says, the Lord looked down upon man what we got is not my perspective but God's perspective and in God's perspective none righteous none that doeth good none that seeketh after God none that understandeth. that's God's perspective now Paul knew that uh, and he had primarily the Jew in mind Paul knew that when he quoted all these Old Testament scriptures the Jew would say well those refer to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ones who of whom it can be said there's done righteous, there's done that doeth good, the poison of ass under their lips, the throats and open why Paul, that all refers to the Gentiles. See, that's what that's what he had no doubt heard in any time. Paul anticipates that. So he says, now I'll quote it, don't you look. Paul says Romans three nineteen, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks. Two different Greek verbs there. It speaks to them who are under the law. Who was under the law? Not the Inca Indians. Not you. Peter says, don't put the yoke of the law on these Gentiles. We've got some preachers who put the yoke of the law on Gentiles in the city of Memphis. Don't do it. See, don't do it. The Bible, Paul said, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law we know that whatever rule Mid-South Bible College has, it speaks to those who are students at Mid-South Bible College. We know that whatsoever the laws of the city of Memphis state, it speaks to those who are citizens of Memphis and under Memphis. So, said Paul, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks not to the Inca Indians, not to your ancestors or mine, unless you're Jewish, but it speaks to those who are under the law, who's under the law, the Jew. the Jew, so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, what is the purpose of that? We'll look at three things here quickly. The application of the law, verse 19a, Paul's answer speaks to you, just like the law of Mid-South Bible College speaks to those who enrolled in Mid-South Bible College. So the law spoke to the Jew who was under the law. Now, what is the purpose of that law speaking? Verse 19b, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law. Now, why did it do it? That every mouth may be, no excuse will stand up in that day. What did the pagan preach? Well, he said, I didn't have a Bible. What does God say? You are without excuse. What did the Jews say? I've got the Bible in circumcision. What did God say? You're without excuse. You didn't appropriate it. You didn't live up to it. You're without excuse. Every mouth, silence. Silence. You're here tonight. You're not a Christian. What excuse do you think you will use? May I suggest to you, that when you stand before God and he plays back the great reel, the cassette tape of your life and thoughts and actions, your mouth will be silent. Every mouth stops. And all the world, secondly, every mouth stops. And the second purpose, all the world stand guilty, guilty before God. Now, you see, he's reached his conclusion. He's reached the end. All the world guilty before God. Well, well, said the Jew. what is the purpose of the law? Can't the law save me? Well, that's why he adds verse 20. And the first word in verse 20 is not therefore. The first word in verse 20 is because. The King James has therefore. Because by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge, the full knowledge of sin. Now, look up here. The law, for by the deeds of the law shall no flesh see state. So What is the purpose of the law, man says? Can I be saved by keeping the law? No, said Paul, no, said Paul. For on the one hand, no flesh will be justified by the law. Why will no flesh be justified by the law? Well, if you're going to be saved, justified by keeping the law, you're going to have to keep it how? Perfectly, perfectly. Here's the man down over he, over the cliff out the Grand Canyon. He's 300 yards down. He's holding on to a little bush. You've seen him on television. See? He's holding on to that little bush there. So you lower, you lower a chain, a chain, a steel chain. It has, let us say, a thousand links in it. You lower that chain and he gets a he wraps it around his body three or four times and ties it hard and underneath and ties it so it'll care and you start to bring him up. A thousand links. 999 are perfect, but one of them is not. What happens to the man? Well, you know, he drops to the bottom of the canyon and is killed. If a man wants to be saved by keeping the law, he's got to keep it perfectly, and nobody can do that no man's justified by keeping the law or by church membership or by baptism positively for by the straight edge of the law is the knowledge of sin is the full knowledge of sin now supposing the city of Memphis did not have a a, a speed limit law let us say the city of Memphis didn't have a speed limit law and um Let us say that we lived on a rather narrow street, and there would be a lot of children on that narrow street, playing on that narrow street. So the cars go down there 60 miles an hour. Now, is that wrong? Well, morally, yes. Legally, no. There's no law against it, see. So it's morally wrong, but... Not legally wrong. One day the city of Memphis passes a speed limit law on that street. Nobody can go over that on that street more than 25 miles an hour. Now a man goes down there 30 miles an hour. The police catch him and he's guilty. Why? Because the law has given to him the full knowledge of his crime, of his evil. Now that's what the law did. You see, and that's Paul's argument. Romans chapter five, we'll see later. That little infant died, five days old, before the Mosaic law. How come they died? Why, well, said Paul, the reason they died is because they were involved in the Adamic sin. They sinned in Adam, as the old McGuffey reader said. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, and they died in Adam. But then God gave the law to give men, that word knowledge is epigenosis, which means full knowledge, full knowledge, full knowledge, so that men could see clearly. God didn't give the law to save men. God gave the law to condemn men. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul says uh, that the law, the Mosaic law, the ten commandments are not a ministry unto life, it's a ministry unto death. God gave the law, the Mosaic law, not to give life to men, but to slay men. And the Mosaic law is not a ministry of life, it's a ministry of death. See, I go in my home. I've been working on the car. My face is dirty. I go to the bathroom. I look in the mirror. The mirror shows me the dirt on the face. But I don't pull down the mirror and wash my face. If I do, you better take me up to Bolivar. See, I don't pull down the mirror and wash my face, do I? The mirror shows me the dirt. That's all it can do. Then I get the water and wash the dirt off my face. So the law, I look into the law, the law of God. I look into the Bible, and as I look, it's a mirror. I'm a sinner. I'm a deep-dyed-in-the-world sinner. I'm a lost, bankrupt I'm a dreadful sinner. The more I study the Bible, the more I recognize, see, that I am a bankrupt, lost, dreadful sinner, hopeless, helpless. Then I flee to Jesus and to his blood to wash me from sin. See, that's the purpose of the law. Why did God give the Mosaic Law? Let me close with this. We're at our conclusion, so I'll just go ahead and give it. Let me state let me state three things by way on what lessons do we learn. We learn a whole lot of lessons, but I'm not going to go into them. I just want to state three things. One is I learned a lesson here which I've already covered, and that's a lesson on total depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity. I believe it. That doesn't mean that a man is as bad as he could be. Doesn't mean the man is not capable of civic good and moral good. But it means that, I, uh, that sin has invaded all of me. Mind, intellect, emotions, will. It means that I'm totally bankrupt. It means that I don't have anything that I can sue for peace with God. I don't come to God like General MacArthur came to the Japanese. I come to God as did the Japanese to General MacArthur see, and ask for peace because I'm bankrupt. I have nothing. Now, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, the Mosaic law. Are you all listening? The purpose of the Mosaic law, basically, is to do three things. First of all, the law reveals the character of God. The law is a transcript of God's character. The law is perfect. I don't believe that believers are under the Mosaic law today, but the same, because but we're not lawless. As O. Barnhouse was very fond of saying, the opposite of being not under law is not lawless, but it's under the law of Jesus Christ. So I'm not...